When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, cultural historian Jonathan Gould returns to talk with Nate about his book, Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America. The conversation focuses on the unique set of historical circumstances that allowed four lads from Liverpool to conquer the musical world. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by Jonathan Gould, who's returning to talk about his book, Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. And so what inspired you to tackle this topic? Because, you know, at at first glance, people think the Beatles has been done. Well, yeah, and it it had been done uh, when I did this, which was, of course, quite a long time ago. I mean, the book was published in 2007, and I started writing it, if you can believe this, about 15 years before. Um, it was the first book that, that I ever wrote, and it took me forever to, to finish it uh, or to write it, I guess, among other things, because I was learning how to write a book, which is something that I'd like to think that I, I know how to do now, or I know, I know more about how to do it. But at any rate, at the time I, I started writing the book, the initial idea was that, um, believe it or not, there hadn't been that much written about the Beatles' music specifically. Um, and my background uh, was as a professional musician who then made a transition into wanting to write about popular music. And I thought I would pick a big subject like the Beatles and um, write about their music in a way that I felt it had not been written about before, in a way that satisfied my ideas about, about how to write about music. 
Um, and as I got into it, I started to realize that to write about their music in the way that I wanted to write about that dimension of, of, of their story, uh, I really had to learn much more about the world that they came from and the phenomenon that they represented. And I would say that probably added a good five more years to the, to the writing of the book as far as this goes. Um, and it, so the, the project uh, evolved from something quite specific um, into, I guess, what, what became a sort of generalized attempt to write about the Beatles, their, their, their backgrounds, their, their career and their music and to somehow integrate all of these things into, into a voice that could, could, um, you know, uh, uh, speak about, speak in the same voice about all of those different aspects of their phenomenon. And to me, the thing that has kept this book something that I go back to periodically because I'm just a crazed Beatles freak. And But uh -huh. the thing, as much as I appreciate your musical insights, and I think it is it is a contender for one of the better musical analysis written about the Beatles, but the thing that makes this book unique to me is, you know, you focus on the biographical, you focus on the musical, but your focus on the historical and your analysis, the depth you bring to the context of the Beatles, mm, because yeah. that to me... That's what's really unique about the Beatles. I mean, obviously, they're great musicians and the music's fascinating, but something really unique happened in 1963 and 1964 that had never happened before, probably will never happen again. And you do a great job of explaining the context that, that the Beatles kind of came into a place and time it was almost like the world was waiting for something like the Beatles to happen. Well, the world was waiting for something, and and uh, uh, and and they filled that they they filled that role. So yes, um, you know, one of the interesting things though that 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 I've I've come to learn about the way things happen in general um, is that uh, there there it's it's very it's very satisfying and it's comparatively. Um, uh, easy to create to, to, to retrace the way things come about you know the causation of something like a phenomenon like the Beatles um, but the other dimension of it that that is is is, is hard to talk about um, has to do with the way it might not have happened uh, and it, the, the dimension that, that that comes into play there that is is quite simply the matter of luck um, when I look at their story uh, at any given point, uh, at many different points, that is to say, if things had gone a different way, if something different had happened from the way that it happened, um, we never would be talking about them. We never would have heard about them. I mean, this is sort of a, a little bit the genius. It, it, it's sort of retrospective, but this is a little bit the genius of this new, this new or relatively new film yesterday, which, which, you know, posits the question of, well, what would the world be like if they never happened? Um, and of course, you know, the, uh, I, I'm very, aware of, of, of uh, not just how they happened, but um, uh, how they might not have happened also in that sense. And I, I just throw that out there because it's, it's you know, um, in, in, in trying to write in an authoritative way about what happened, particularly uh, in, in, you know, 1962 and 63 and 64 in Britain and, and the United States, um, you, you can, you know, you can make it sound like it was preordained almost. Uh, and, and in to some extent, that's what you do when you write a narrative is, 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 is you try to give it a kind of force that makes it think that, well, this, this just had to play out in this way. But I'm just throwing out there the idea that these things, 
these things um, also could not happen. And at any given point right now, as, as, as we sit here, um, uh, uh, a group of, uh, it, well, in this case, very talented, very ambitious people um, are pursuing a dream that we may never, never hear about, <laughs> you know, in that sense. Uh, it, it will never it will never make a mark on any on, on people's consciousness because the right the, the, the stars were not properly were not properly aligned to make it happen. But then getting back to what did happen in 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 the in, in the early 60s um yeah it was um it was an extraordinary period and the beatles sort of waltzed into it uh with with an amazing kind of cultural uh wielding an amazing kind of cultural power which of course they didn't realize until they until in, in until it was it was it was shown to them um what their effect was in that way and you start the book with a prologue that that starts with the Beatles landing in New York and doing their famous press conference mm-hmm. uh, at the J- LaGuardia Airport. And you summarize some of the things I want to beat people over the head with was just the magnitude of the Beatles' sudden explosion of popularity in the States in 1964. I mean, you talk about um, they sold something like 60% of all singles sold in the first quarter of 1964 were Beatles records. I mean, and this was at a point when singles were the biggest selling uh, record market and records were a huge part of the entertainment economy. Mm -hmm. And then um, they broke the all-time TV ratings records with Ed Sullivan, 70 million people turning in, 21 million teenagers tuning in uh, Mm -hmm. to one show all at the same time. There were 14,000 magazine stories written in a three-week period. And this was a period, a point in time when everybody had magazines like Time and Life and Newsweek on on their coffee tables and they were read. I mean, coming from the perspective of 2019, it's so hard to look back and remember just how massive print magazines were at the time. And the Beatles sold gazillions of the things. Yeah, well, it was it was also. I mean, you know, we're very familiar nowadays with this idea, as we describe it, of things going viral on the internet, right? And suddenly, or you know, on or on Twitter, and 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 suddenly there are you know, uh, twenty million people are are, are 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 sort of commenting on something, or 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 certainly aware of it in that way. Um, in those days, before the internet, um, in 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 you know, the era of print journalism and uh, black and white television, uh, and you know. Um, uh, and, and, and a very different, uh, to say the least, media environment. Um, there were two things uh, about it. One was it was much more difficult for things like this to happen. Um, but when they did happen, they had, I think, much greater force because they were so unusual. So, you know, uh, one of one of the things that that I learned, um, having lived through Beatlemania uh, as a, as a young teenager, I think I was twelve or thirteen years old when it happened um, uh, in in the U.S. Uh, but but having had a personal experience of it of some sort here, uh, one of the interesting things to me was 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 to realize, of course, uh, which I, I guess I knew at the time, um, that it had happened in Britain and it had happened in a very similar way in Britain, but then. I found myself asking the question, well, 
when I, when I came to understand things about the Beatles background and what they represented in, 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 in Britain and so on and so forth, a great deal of what they did made perfect sense. A great deal of the way people responded to them uh, made perfect sense because they, 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 they answered such a, such an obvious sort of social and cultural need um, for young people in Britain. But then I asked myself the question, okay, great. But, but then why should that happen here in the United States? A very, very different country, uh, at, uh, particularly at that time, um, with a very different sort of um, uh, attitude about many of the things that were that made the Beatles particularly sort of relevant in Britain. Why should that same thing happen here in, if anything, an even more compressed way? Because it took a couple of months for it to happen in Britain. Uh, the, the sort of the, the real, what the press referred to as the hysteria of teenage girls and the frenzy of, of the press itself really started in the summer of 1963 uh, in, 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 in Britain and, and sort of exploded over that fall. But what happened in the United States really happened um, between the, the, the last days of December in 1963 and uh, the first two weeks of January. And suddenly um, the Beatles went from being virtually unknown to being completely ubiquitous. And uh, again, that was um, the, the explosiveness of that was 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 pretty unprecedented, I guess. Um, you know, it had happened with um, it had happened to some extent with a figure like Elvis Presley before, but 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 Elvis, the the, the explosion of, of 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 what he represented was 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 of, of a lesser magnitude because. Um, uh, among other things, the media environment was different and so on and so forth. Uh, certainly in America, the Beatles fulfilled this, this, this need that I think people didn't even, didn't begin to know, um, existed. You know, they were answering it, uh, 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 um, uh, yes, a need, you know, that, that, that was, was, was unrecognized at the time. And let's hear the raw material they're working with. This is a clip from the Star Club of the Beatles doing a Chuck Berry song, I'm Talking About You. And that was the Beatles captured live at the Star Club uh, on New Year's Day, nineteen sixty, or New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty-two, if I'm correct. Uh, doing right. talking about you, and this is crude, old-school rock and roll. This is this is already four or five years um, behind the times when they're doing sure. this stuff. What, what, what was it about the Beatles as a rock and roll revival act that added to their success and and made them such an ironically a new force in sixty-three, sixty-four? Well, the, the whole Liverpool beat scene, which of, of which the Beatles became the most prominent sort of representatives, was a uh, yeah was it was a rock and roll revival, um, and uh, its its popularity in Liverpool, which was this tough working class port, you know, um, two hundred two hundred miles north of of of, of London, uh, which. Um, in, in a certain, even more than a place like New York in, in, in America dominated the culture of, of, of Britain. I mean, uh, 
British media culture was totally metropolitan. That is to say, it all it all emanated from London. Um, so a place like Liverpool had a sense of itself as a kind of a backwater, as a place that was, you know, um, but it also had a very strong identity. And uh, in in the early, really the the the, the very late fifties and the early nineteen sixties. Bands in, in, in Liverpool sort of kind of took up the mantle of, of what they thought of as, as, as old time rock and roll. Of course, it wasn't really old time. It was, it was a few years old, but it had largely, uh, the, the work of, of, of artists like Chuck Berry and, and Little Richard, uh, and, and Carl Perkins, uh, the rockabilly stars had, had really faded from, from, from the airwaves. And this was a revival and what they were reviving, they thought of was the, the raw feeling of, of, of that kind of music. Uh, everybody uh, who was a fan of rock and roll in the, in, in the 1950s had, had seen Elvis go from being this, this extraordinarily gifted rock singer um, to become kind of a conventional all-round entertainer, you know, um, un- un- under the un- under the influence of Colonel Parker and Hollywood and so on and so forth. And and there was a sense of, uh, to put it in 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 sort of strong adolescent terms, there was a sense of almost betrayal that 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 Elvis had had you know left his left his 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 essential nature behind and cleaned himself up and all of this sort of thing. So initially, the Beatles, um, yeah, were a rock and roll revival. Act, but the thing that nobody expected, and the, and and the difference between um, what they were putting out at the Star Club in 1962, uh, you know. And um, what the world heard in in 1963 and 64 was this extraordinary, um, the extraordinary advent of John Lennon and Paul McCartney as 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 songwriters. Um, the, the Beatles gave an impression that they had uh, that they'd been writing songs together from the very beginning, from the time they first met in 1957, and in a certain sense they had. Um, but when you hear what they wrote, uh, when you hear those old songs, um, uh, or those 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 early songs, I guess is a better way to put it. Uh, first of all, they're pretty terrible, and second of all, um, you can this, this is not what they spent their time doing. They spent their time learning how to play together and learning how to sing together and by the time of 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 um you know their 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 apprenticeship in 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 germany and hamburg and places like the star club they were getting very good at that but the thing that 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 i think nobody expected and the thing that that transformed their whole musical phenomenon was the birth of 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 the real birth of them as songwriters and that really happened um I would say to a large extent when around the time they began recording, um, and this is not unusual uh, in the sense that often when people really start, when, when artists first start to hear themselves um, recorded, um, there's a, there, there's something that takes over that allows them to uh, d- uh, develop a, an awareness of, 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 of themselves as singers, as artists um, that didn't exist before. Um, anybody who's ever played music live knows that, that you, you, when you're playing, you're really, uh, particularly in those days, uh, when the sound systems were so terrible, you're, you're just trying to be heard over the sound of the band. It's not like you really know what you sound like. But when the Beatles started to record and they started to get a sense of what their voices actually sounded like and, and, and what they sounded like as a band, this had a, a, a transformative effect on their songwriting. And um, 
again, I don't think that they would have had anything like the effect that they had um, in in a general way if they if in 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 the fall of 1963, say, they had mainly been playing old rock and roll. Uh, and they certainly wouldn't have had the impact that they had in the United States because um, th- there wasn't much market for old rock and roll, uh, you know, in in the U.S. It would have been seen as 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 totally anachronistic in that way. So th- the birth of their songwriting, um, as I say, over the cor- second half of 1962 and, and 1963, was the um, in terms of what they were putting out rather than what the world was projecting on them, was I think the a, a really critical sort of dimension to, to all. Of this. And so you take amazing songwriting, incredible singing. The Lennon McCartney were both world class vocalists. Absolutely. And in mm-hmm. a very new style, but they take place in a context that's very prepared for them. I mean, the, the, the unlikelihood, seemingly, of four hicks from Liverpool taking over the world in an 18-month period, it <laughs> seems impossible. But you, you, you illustrate in the book that this is all part of the post-World War II reordering of the, of the global order. England fell from being the dominant power for well over a century and a half sure. to the second rank. And the United States ascended to global hegemony. But part of that, in that process... England starts to mimic the consumer culture of the U.S., and it takes about 15 years for this really to click. But the Beatles, as as war babies, they were kind of the lab where these experiments in inculcating a consumer culture happened. And and one of the things I thought was really fascinating about the book is is you 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 point out how unique it was for a group of stars to emerge suddenly, and that one of the the things that was new and novel this wasn't one person like Elvis or Frank Sinatra or Johnny Ray mm-hmm. who had all had these, you know, screaming explosions of, of fan hysteria in the, you know, period from World War II to the 60s. This is a group of young lads who at first present a fairly uniform image with, with their sharp suits and ridiculous seeming haircuts. But but what was it about the, the group dynamic that allowed them to capture the the to fascinate a whole generation so much sure well uh, first of all in england particularly um working class culture in in england is um has a a, a collective ethos um working class culture in england which which in britain uh, you know in 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 the 20th century constituted you know, you can argue about the percentages, but 60 or 70 percent of the population. And of course, in, in, in Britain, as in most of Europe, uh, where class consciousness is, was, was a real, um, was, was indeed a form of consciousness. People were aware of it. People would describe themselves as working class. Uh, you know, in America, uh, one, of the, one of the conceits of, uh, of, of, of our culture has always been, well, we don't really have a class system. And uh, most people describe themselves as middle class. And even when they do that, there isn't with a sense of, of, of powerful identity necessarily. And this was particularly true in post-war America, where it was felt that oh, somehow everybody was middle class or everybody was at least aspiring to middle class. In Britain, um, people thought of themselves, uh, I guess a better way to put it is people thought of themselves um, proudly and, and consciously as working class. 
And um, the working class ethos was very much one of us and them, um, us being working class, them being the middle and upper classes. And um, there was a, 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 an assumed uh, uh, tension, social tension and resentment and so on and so forth. And for, for many, many years uh, in Britain, all of these, these divisions were enforced, among other, thing, among other things, educationally. Middle class people were educated. Upper class people were educated. Um, lower class or working class people went to school until they were 14 years old. And then they went, they went to work, as far as this goes. And that began to change after World War II. Uh, uh, Britain totally um, uh, revised its educational system and provided uh, many more opportunities for working class uh, children to get the kind of education that, 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 that should prepare them for advancement into middle class life. But as with most sort of social transformations, um, these, it was, it was, uh, it, uh, it, was it, it was, uh, uh, it, it worked out better in theory than it did in reality. Um, and of course, the Beatles, in addition to being war babies, as we think of it, were also products of that educational transformation. Um, John Lennon, who was actually uh, had came from what, what anybody in Britain would have called a lower middle class background rather than a working class background, um, was uh, a, a, sort of went went to grammar school, which was their way of of of, of preparing people to uh, uh, to go on to university, let's say. But so did Paul McCartney and and George Harrison, who grew up on what what the British call housing estates, which we would call housing projects. Um, they were real working class kids. So the the initial thing that brought the three of these guys together was the fact that they were. Um, uh, to, to some extent isolated from their, 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 their origins, uh, particularly in the case of Paul and George, by virtue of the fact, um, that they, they had these continuing educations. And, um, I bring this up because what we're talking about right there was, was a, a kind of a, a, a dilution of the type of, of class consciousness that, that, that people like them otherwise would have grown up with. Um, and what this began to translate into in, in the Beatles was, was a very interesting, um, sort of, sort of mediation of the, 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 the kind of collective sensibility of the working class, uh, of the group, that is to say, and the individualism of, uh, of, of the middle class, the striving of the middle class. Um, and, and in some ways, those two, those two dynamics played out in them on every level. It played out internally in the group. Group in, in, in the way that they sort of governed one another's behavior. Um, and it also played out in the way that they were perceived. So now getting back to the, 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 the sort of critical thing that, that, that you were alluding to, um, entertainment had created this category of, 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 of public figure called the star. Um, Hollywood perfected it. You, you almost say that Hollywood industrialized it. There had always been stars before that. I mean, Sarah Bernhardt in the, in the, in the 19th century was a star. There had always been performers who stood out from all of the rest and seemed to have some, some otherworldly uh, sort of quality to them. Um, but Hollywood really, as I say, institutionalized that idea. And, and some would say industrialized that idea in the sense of Hollywood developed the ability to take just about anybody and groom them in a certain way and teach them how to speak and teach them how to act and behave and so on and so forth um, and, and, and create this type of, of, of uh, otherworldly figure, which um, was once 
pretty much confined to to entertainment but nowadays in, in our culture what we're really talking about is celebrities we're talking about people who um you know sort of for by virtue of the way they looked at, look and act and and seem to be uh stand out from all of the rest um but this was always an expression of 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 the most intense type of sort of individual of, of individualism um even if these people were created by other people nevertheless the what 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 everybody was looking at was this singular figure um there had been groups in 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 popular culture before they were the marx brothers for example but they were comedians and they were comedians who who assigned themselves these very sort of um uh ethnically among other things ethnically stereotyped roles they they were they were an obvious act in that way um and of course the other great sort of expression of of collective um identity in popular culture came from sports uh and a lot of the appeal of of team sports that is to say which were the main form of sports that people followed um, throughout the 20th century, um, was this idea of a team, of a group of people who were committed to one another. Um, in the case of the Beatles, uh, however, what they did was, they, uh, essentially, and it, and it came very naturally to them, they took this collective identity um, that was uh, in some ways very common in Britain and, and, and uh, of, of, of a group of mates, uh, a, a, a group of teenagers who were, who, who, who were friends, who were friends with one another. Um, in America, they would have been called a gang. You know, uh, there was, there was that, that sort of uh, stereotype. But this collective identity of, of, of a group and managed to, uh, with the help of the media and, and the help of, of what people projected onto them, ramp it up to the level of a star. And somehow or another, the, the, the alchemy, the synthesis of these two, the, these two sorts of, 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 of forms of identity, the, the, the sort of, the sort of exaggerated individualism of stardom and the exaggerated sort of collectivism of, 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 of working class sensibility created something completely new. Um, and as it turned out, something extremely powerful in its effect on the the imaginations of 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 the public, both in Britain, where it was quite familiar, everybody knew knew that this was a bunch of mates who had somehow turned that you know somehow managed to 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 project themselves into the public eye. But in America, um, that type of collectivism, that type of of of, of solidarity, um, was. Was, 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 was not just unknown, but it was, it turned out to be explosive in terms of its, its impact on people. And let's hear some of the early efforts of songwriting uh, from John Lennon. This is John Lennon doing a demo of, of What Goes On, a, a mm-hmm. song they wouldn't put out until 1965, but it was one he wrote uh, in the late 50s. And here's him doing a demo of it in 1963. And that's John Lennon's uh, demo for What Goes On, a song the Beatles wouldn't release for a couple more years. But it shows you kind of the, the nascent uh, songwriting talent in its infancy. 
And one thing that I think that sums up what you've been talking about is, is what you described as they were a merger of middle of working class solidarity and middle class ambition. And one mm -hmm. of the things that one of the trends that you talk about that was going on in England in the 50s that built up to the Beatles was this angry young men movement and drama and and movies. What was it that was unique about that, that seeing virile working class men uh, that was new in British culture? Sure. Well, well um, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the book that, that, that uh, Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel and um, uh, 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 John Osborne's play uh, Look Back in Anger opened in, in uh, arrived in Britain um, at almost exactly the same moment. And um, Elvis, we know what we know what that was about for the most part. But in the case of of, of look back and anger, um, John Osborne created a protagonist named Jimmy Porter, and Jimmy Porter um, is is uh, 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 well, he, he he as the title as the title suggests, he's an angry young man. But the the nature of his anger is is what was interesting. Um, Jimmy Jimmy Porter was exactly what John Lennon, uh, Paul McCartney, and and George Harrison was. He was a product of the post-war British, or the reformed post-war. British educational system. Um, Jimmy Porter is hyper articulate. He's an educated person. But many people, particularly in the first, well, I was, I start to say in the first couple of generations of this, but it's been an ongoing problem, uh, both in Britain and in some ways in the United States too. Um, many people in the first generation uh, of that reformed British uh, sort of educational system that it was designed to give new opportunities to uh, working class and lower middle class people um, were very found that actually there was there was no outlet for their for their their their, their talents um, in in British society uh, particularly in, in the 1950s when Britain the British economy was still in in desperate straits um, as a result of of, of uh, World War two and and um, I mean th th there was still uh, uh, various forms of rationing in Britain in the mid 50s um, left over from the war um, and from the, the the British economy's attempts to recover from this this incredible drain of wealth uh, that, that occurred as a result of the war, uh, or rather their need to, to to pay for pay for their part in the war. So Jimmy Jimmy Porter's anger was um, was something very new. A character like this was very new in Britain. Um, and it had to do a great, uh, 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 among other things, with how how articulate he was, how self-aware and how how articulate he was about his 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 social position. Um, so the idea of 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 um, uh, 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 in this case a theatrical character, but the idea of a generation of particularly young men um, who were aware of of um, sort of. How, how British society was set up to constrain them, how British society, as we would say uh, in, in, a, in a modern day American context, the ways in which British society was rigged um, to, uh, for the benefit of, 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 of the wealthy um, and, and, and the upper middle classes, um, this was something very new there. This, this type of, 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 of sort of social protest was very new. And um, for me, one of the reasons I, I, I start the book with, with Jimmy Porter is that Jimmy Porter, in some ways, is a prototype of John Lennon. Um, John Lennon, too, had a, had a, a, a hyper-articulate sort of, sort of uh, uh, kind of um, 
sort of awareness of, uh, again, the, both the, the class dynamics of British society and the, the hypocrisies of British society and so on and so forth. This is one of the things that, that, that made, you know, within the Beatles, his social vision um, so powerful for so many people. So, uh, you know, in, in that sense, um, it was new in Britain. We had we had, had uh, in in America um, th- there had been there had been a whole sort of genre of proletarian fiction uh, and proletarian drama going back, especially to the 1930s. But this had, this had not happened in Britain. So uh, in some ways, what happened um, in British theater and 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 to some extent in British social consciousness in in the 1950s was more like what what happened during the Great Depression in the United States. And so the ground had been laid for working class figures and, and lower middle class figures to emerge into British culture in a big way. I mean, people like actor Michael Caine and and many others were elevating British working class into, into the public consciousness. So when the Beatles emerged in early 63, Britain was ready for them and, and they – but one thing that, that, that happened and you articulate pretty clearly in the book is – their singles are successful. Their touring is reaching larger and larger audiences. Their album is a massive hit, uh, mm-hmm. Please Please Me, in early 63. But the British press doesn't really catch on until after She Loves You, after you know, which is, is their sure. fourth, fourth single and an incredibly big hit. And it sort of gives the illusion that this phenomenon came out of nowhere when actually it had been building up uh, gradually in Britain throughout the year. Yeah, well, it's 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 shocking um, by modern standards to 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 realize um, both in Britain and the United States, but particularly in Britain, how little coverage was given to um, to, to things like popular music in in just the general press. Uh, uh, you know, even even films um, in that period. Um, they were reviewed, but, but, you know, we have this massive industry now that, that we're all completely familiar with where, um, and of course the internet has, 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 has magnified this, has brought this to a whole new order of magnitude, but, um, where, you know, every record that comes out, every artist who appears on the scene, um, they're, 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 they're public figures. This was not the case in Britain in, in, in the early 1960s. They were fan magazines. Um, that were pretty, pretty cheap and, you know, pretty patronizing and were purchased by teenagers. Um, but it wasn't as if anybody in, in, in the general press paid attention to that. So yeah, this, this, this whole phenomenon of, of Beatlemania, um, as, as an entertainment phenomenon was able to sort of reach a, a pretty, a, a pretty serious sort of, sort of level of, of, of commercial success, um, and 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 public awareness uh before the press felt any need to to look at it now the other thing that was happening that 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 um added to the the press's sort of obliviousness to all of this was that um the british press in, over the course of 1962 was having an absolute field day with what in some ways was the 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 prototype for the political sex for all of the political sex scandals that have happened in the modern era which was this uh there's no reason to go into the details of it but basically it involved a a, a british cabinet 
cabinet minister named Profumo, who was involved with a call girl ring in London um, that also involved a, an attache at the, at the Russian embassy who was almost undoubtedly a, a spy. And so the fact that the British war minister, which is what Profumo was, um, was uh, having an affair with a call girl who was also um, having an affair with a Russian spy, you know, remember this is, this is, this, I, I think the second James Bond book had come out by 1963. I think Dr. Not, not book, rather a uh, film. Um, Dr. No, I think was 1962. I, I think the next one was 1963. This was a, this was a, a, um, a political scandal that was like something out of James Bond in this way. So, to some extent, uh, and of course, it involved all of the lurid details about, um, you know, n- not just the, the, the sexual conduct of these people. There were there were aristocrats involved. Lord Astor was involved, um, so on and so forth. So the British press sort of had all the red meat that it needed um, over the in, in the summer of nineteen, or in the, especially in the in, in the winter of, of, of and, and and first half of nineteen sixty three. Um, they weren't looking for for other stories to interest them. Um, they were they were they were completely preoccupied by the Profumo scandal, as it was called. And that helped to, um, to, to turn the Beatles into this kind of stealth phenomenon. But of course, then what happened, uh, because one of the things that, about the Profumo scandal, um, there was a famous headline on, on, on the Daily, I think it was the Daily Mirror, which is like the equivalent. I mean, it was the, you know, it was the, it was the, 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 uh, the biggest, biggest tabloid paper in Britain. And of course, one of the things that's interesting about Britain then and, 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 and now is that the newspapers are really all national newspapers. Um, uh, so, so everybody, you know, read, read, read these, these tabloid papers. There was, there was a headline on, on the, uh, on, on the, on, on the daily, uh, daily mirror that asked, what the hell is happening in this country? Right. Um, this I think was in the, in the, in the early summer of, of 1963. And then as the summer went on and the, the Beatles became the, 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 the you know, uh, Beatle, Beatle concerts uh, became the scenes of these, 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 these sort of uh, this kind of amazing um, demonstrations by, by screaming girls um, who, uh, and, and the, the term that was always ascribed to the girls was hysterical, uh, that, that they were in the throes of hysteria, which of course is a sexual, uh, you know, is, is a sexual idea, a sexual term. Um, the, the press started to, initially started to, um, to turn its attention to this as yet another example of the possibility that Britain was, was just going to hell in a handbasket, right? It's like, first we have ministers sleeping with call girls and so on and this. And now we have, um, you know, these, these, these audiences of screaming teenage girls, um, who seem to be in some orgasmic state of, of, of rapture, so on and so forth. And, and that was the initial kind of, um, uh, sort of attraction of the Beatles, uh, of the Beatle phenomenon, uh, to the press, to the British press. What they found when they started to, to look into the whole thing, though, uh, was something very different because they started to talk to the, they started, as, as, as reporters will, they started to interview the Beatles themselves. And the Beatles' behavior with the press, first in Britain and then in the United States, was, uh, was revelatory. 
be, and 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 I think this is you know this 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 too was uh, to the extent that they were the architects of their own success. Not Brian Epstein because their the, their manager Epstein was a brilliant manager and a visionary manager. Um, but I think that even Epstein didn't realize that the Beatles would behave the way that they d- did behave with reporters. Um, normally, the way that uh, people uh, in, in in all forms of, of entertainment and and, cu- and culture and so on and so forth behave with reporters is the way that I'm behaving with you right now, which is I'm taking this whole thing very seriously, and I'm trying to give straightforward answers, um, and I'm trying not to say anything that's going to that that might seriously offend anybody, you know, so on and so forth. Um, in the case of the Beatles, though, they behaved with, with British reporters um, as if this was the biggest joke in the world. And the reason was that um, they had seen um, celebrities and pop singers and things like that interviewed before, um, you know, uh, as they were growing up, as they were coming up uh, in their careers. And they had seen these, these incredibly sort of, sort of, uh, sort of banal answers that people gave to reporters questions you know i mean the, the one was the, the classic one was the way that elvis you know just couldn't stop talking about how he owed everything to his fans right and the fans this and you know these these ingratiating sort of responses and the beatles um for two reasons first of all because of their temperament um uh and their liverpoolian backgrounds um uh refused to do this. They weren't going to say those things that were expected of them. And instead they, they acted, uh, they, they took on the, the, the identity, um, that a lot of Liverpoolians took on when they, when they were, especially when they're outside of Liverpool of these kind of, these kind of straight talking provincial rubes. Um, and, uh, the, the British public went nuts over this because they'd never seen anybody behave. I mean, decorum in Britain at all levels of society has, 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 has a pretty strong hold on everybody. And here were people who were behaving uh, with no decorum whatsoever. On the contrary, they were, they were, they, they were trying to outdo one another in saying something, uh, you know, sort of outrageous. Um, but they were also very charming and, and they were also, they were actually more calculating about this than, 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 uh, people fully understood. But the other thing about it that goes back to the group identity, which was that, um, you know, most people, uh, if, if they are fortunate enough to, to, you know, sort of get on the elevator of, of success, uh, of success and fame, um, there, there's only one person on that elevator as it goes up and people adjust, uh, individually, they adjust their personalities, they they adjust their psychologies, um, to what's happening to them often without even realizing it. In the case of the Beatles though, um, in a way that was, that was extraordinarily sort of, sort of, uh, uh, amusing and compelling, they kind of kept one another honest. Um, they were a group of people and this was happening to the four of them. And, um, it was impossible for any one of them to, to sort of, to, to, to sort of transform himself, uh, into, into somebody who w- would be taking all of this for granted, would be taking all of this as if it was his due or something like that. Um, you know, Paul McCartney, who was probably the most ingratiating, uh, of, of, of the four of them, um, fairly early on, uh, one of the band's standard sort of jokes because people would ask them, um, 
uh, if they rehearsed and, and their standard response to that was, you know, people, they were obviously talking about, about musically, but, but, but the, the way the Beatles took it, they would, they would say, well, do you rehearse? And, you know, one of them would say, well, Paul does, but the rest of us don't in that way. Meaning, you know, do you, do you, do you, do you tailor your personalities, um, to, to this, you know, to, to, to this type of situation? And this too, um, the, 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 the honesty, the, 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 uh, that, that, that came through, um, you know the, the 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 lack of cant and the lack of of of, of sort of phoniness um, that came from the way that they would cut one another down all the time in interviews and 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 and, and so on and so forth was unprecedented in in a public sense um, and incredibly uh, incredibly compelling to to the British public and then the same thing happened when they came to America I mean the the reporters who met them. At, uh, at at Kennedy Airport, um, they didn't know what to make of them. They they never had people respond to their questions like this. Um, they were responding as if they didn't take it seriously. And you know what reporters uh, are doing when when they show up at a press conference, at the very least, what they're saying is, "This is very important. We're giving you an enormous, you know, an important uh, platform of publicity, and we expect for you to play your part in this." And instead, the Beatles just treated the whole thing as if it was kind of a joke. You've got and, a great quote in the book uh, from John Lennon when a reporter, you know, sort of <laughs> begs for mercy yeah. asking, I'm just trying to write a nice personality piece. And Lennon, right. And, and John says, well, I don't have a nice personality. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hear one more uh, song sample. This is uh, Paul McCartney doing an early demo of All Follow the Sun, a song he wrote in the late 50s. You look to see I've gone for tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. Someday you'll know I was the one. But tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. And now the time has come, and so my love, I must go. And though. And that was Paul McCartney doing a demo of All Follow the Sun. And, and you can get a taste of the Beatles trying to perfect their art of songwriting there. But one thing that you bring out that I think is, is I, I, have to, I have to say one thing there. I have to amend one thing that I said earlier, which was that I said that um, you know most of the early songs that they wrote were terrible. And um, All Follow the Sun is, is a very conventional song, but it's a beautiful song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a terrible song. That's that's a glimmer of of the melodic sense that McCartney, of course, would would you know would 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 rely on again and again and again as time went on. Yeah, and and um one one thing that you yeah, that you bring out um to get back to the media is that around this time, social analysts like Daniel Borston were beginning to analyze the phenomena of mass media and the way it created opportunities for advertisers and, and pop group managers to manipulate the audience. And so the media was becoming aware of this and, and that one of the reasons that so much of the early analysis of the Beatles was wrongheaded because the fundamental question was, how long is this going to last? I mean, everybody just sure. assumed that this was uh, an ephemeral phenomenon rather than something that took off like a rocket in the early 60s and has stayed consistently popular now for for six decades yes and and well, go ahead go ahead explain that why, why were well, people so be, sure be, people, this I mean, was a manufactured thing you know 
in today's world, we have fake news, okay? That is to say, we have the claim of fake news. We have the idea that the media, um, you know, prints things that aren't true, okay? Or that the, the, the news media, rather. In, in, in the early 1960s, uh, 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 there was a considerable amount of public awareness of what was of what was then considered a relatively new industry, which was called public relations, right? Or rather, I'll, I'll say advertising and public relations. Now, advertising had been around for a long time, but there was a, there was a growing awareness of the manipulative nature um, that uh, um, both, you know, sort of public relations consultants and and advertising men, uh, because they were almost all men at the time, um, you know, sort of, uh, the, of, the, of the, the techniques that were used to manipulate public opinion and, uh, you know, and, and consumer consciousness and so on and so forth. And there were a whole lot of books that came out all through the 50s, most of them relying on, on you know, sort of derived from some form of Freudian psychology and so on and so forth. Um, there was one called The Hidden Persuasion waiters and so on and, and so forth, talking about these, these things that were going on behind the scenes. Um, there was the famous thing about the, the supposedly subliminal um, sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, shots of popcorn that were put in, you know, uh, that were shown in the trailers for movies that would supposedly would stimulate people to go out and buy popcorn in the lobby, even though they didn't even, they went by so quickly they couldn't see this. There was this enormous sort of awareness and, and fear and concern about manipulation. And um, so, and, and, and Daniel Borston's book is, um, which, which is in some ways, in some ways is, is extraordinarily prescient and in some ways is extraordinarily naive, um, was, 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 was a, 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 an expression or a manifestation of this feeling. So when the Beatles happened, when this thing exploded, um, Everybody tended to assume that somewhere somebody was pulling the strings, that somewhere somebody, um, some genius, right, um, was, 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 was making the moves that would, that would create something like this, that would manipulate the public's consciousness in this way. And of course, the obvious candidate for that was Brian Epstein, who was the band's manager. And Brian was, was in some ways, uh, uh, indeed a, a very visionary figure in in the world of of of, of um, music management or especially uh pop music management. Brian's sort of standards were, came really more from the theater and his idea of, 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 of how it was to manage a group and how it was to manage the public image of a group had much more to do with, with, with the British theater and, and his experience in it than it did with, with the pop world. Um, but um, among other things, he was no Svengali. He had no, no special sort of, um, sort of, sort of uh, awareness or, or, or technique that he was applying to this. Um, but uh, in, in some ways, I would say that the, the, uh, the, the kind of one of the things that supercharged the Beatles phenomenon was the way in which um, uh, their immediate audience, the teenagers, um, who uh, sort of turned out to be right in, in, in the sense that um, the adult world was saying, well, what's going on here is that some, somebody has found a way to manipulate the, you know, the, the passions of, 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 of sort of, of uh, gullible, you know, sort of adolescence to respond this way to this music. That was the adult view of what must be happening here. And it was relatively harmless and relatively amusing and all of that. Um, and so then the question 
you know, that's, it's based on the idea of how long will it last, which was the question that the Beatles were asked all the time. Um, the idea was that when would the spell be broken? You know, when would, when would people either sort of like wake up and, and to, to see um, just how constru- contrived this whole thing was? Or when would something else come along that, that, that um, you know, sort of captured people's attentions, uh, people's attention the way this had? And then this would fade away and they'd be on to the next thing was sort of the idea. And all the time, you know, the, the, the Beatles, uh, again, made light of, of, of the whole notion that this was a, a manipulation, even though they were very offended by it, because one of the things that, 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 that came through um, uh, in their uh, presentation to the, to, the, to the press and the public was, and, and that, that, that was based very much in reality, they saw themselves as musicians. They hadn't set out to be um, world, you know, uh, worldwide celebrities. They were musicians. That was their identity. They were proud of their music. They worked hard at it. Um, that was that was the way they thought of themselves. And they would like to think. And I think looking back on it, um, they were correct to think that the reason were, that people were responding mainly to them was that they wrote wonderful songs and sang them in a, in, in a totally compelling manner. And, uh, then, um, once they had established themselves, um, uh, on that basis started to evolve as musicians and singers and, 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 and songwriters in ways that, 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 that were, uh, again, fascinating to, to a public that was used to the idea that if somebody succeeded at something, they would just keep doing the same thing until somebody else came along that was more interesting in that way. Um, so that, that was the Beatles take on this, but the, the, um, the, the whole basis of, of the sort of adult view of them, and of course, this became another version of us and them, right? Uh, in terms of the, the, the teenage view of things and the Beatles view of things, us being us, the Beatles, us being us, the Beatles and our fans, them being this cynical, uh, sort of adult take on what was happening. And, you know, then, uh, fairly early on, you know, you had people, um, uh, prominent figures, particularly in music, um, starting to say, well, you know, there's actually something, there's actually something pretty valid about what these guys are doing. And, and, and it was, it was at that point that the, the adult view of, of, of whatever this represented, um, started to shift because so-called experts, uh, musical experts, that is to say, some of them critics, some of the musicians. Um, a few years later, people like Leonard Bernstein became very prominent in this regard because he, he you know, by the by the mid '60s, uh, people like Bernstein were recognizing that these that Leonard and McCartney were extraordinarily gifted composers, and and uh, we're, you know we're talking about it in this way. But until that 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 imprimatur of expert opinion sort of um, was applied to the Beatles' music, uh, you know. The, the, the adult view of this was that this was a kind of um, this was a kind of uh, you know dream that had been concocted somehow or a fantasy that had been concocted by by somebody who really knew what knew what he or she was doing. And the Beatles were quick uh, to figure out what was going on and were way ahead of the critics. There's a quote in here from John Lennon I think is pretty central to the the point of the book. Lennon telling an early interviewer, "This isn't show business." This is something else. This is different mm-hmm. from anything that anybody imagines. You don't go on from this. You do this, and then you finish. And and you bring in uh, the German sociologist Max Weber, who had 
postulated this notion of of charismatic leaders that that society occasionally hits points at which order breaks down and the normal hierarchies uh, and paths to power don't apply and these charismatic figures emerge people like Mussolini and, and Hitler and Lenin that that dominate society and in a way the Beatles became a social, you know a pop culture version of that yeah I, I i have a confession to make which is that um since you know most of my writing about this and thinking about this and all of this you know, was done many, many years ago before we, uh, we, before we, we did this interview when you mentioned that you wanted maybe to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the charismatic dimension to their success. Um, I went back and I reread some of my own writing. Okay. And the only reason I bring that up is that, um, uh, Reading that, reading my thinking and, and, and so on and so forth about, about how that, that, that came to, came to play in, in the Beatle phenomenon in the age of Trump was horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's the only way I can describe it, um, because uh, you know Max Weber's whole view of, of charisma, and it was it was not a major. I mean, he was a, he was a, a major German sociologist, and, and his 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 writing about charisma was a, was a small part of what he did, and in fact the whole notion of charisma. Um, it didn't have a great deal of traction until um, the press started, or until until writers started to, to use it, reporters started to use it in 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 the fifties and early sixties as a kind of as a kind of sexy term for um, for you know uh, uh, strong forms of public appeal. But when when Weber was writing about it, it was it was in the early twentieth century, and it clearly um, uh, it, it clearly anticipated. The, the, the sort of great, um, uh, you know, sort of demagogues of the 20th century. Um, and in fact, it's so, it, it resonated, his writing about it resonated so powerfully with figures like Hitler and Mussolini and Mao and so on and so forth, that the, the concept of charisma became seen mainly as a political, um, before that it had been mainly a religious, you know, sort of term about these, these figures who come along, these messianic figures who come along and, you know, have this, uh, have this capacity to, to have people identify with them on, 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 uh, you know, sort of, uh, on unprecedented sort of levels and to, and, and basically to, to submit to them as, as these, these, these kind of authority figures, but a different kind of authority figure. And, um, it, it was not applied much to, um, to, to, entertainment certainly uh to to figures in popular culture except in a very kind of in a, in a very kind of uh lax and unrigorous way it was just a kind of interesting term to to use you know in this way but um the essence of what weber was getting at is that there are two kinds of authority in the world one is a kind of patriarchal authority um which is uh the the, the sort of the authority of uh that that, that uh, the hierarchical authority that 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 dominates most societies um and then there's charismatic authority and charismatic authority is is the is is the antagonist to um hierarchical or patriarchal authority um and um, it, it, it arises or, or it gains traction in times of, 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 of 
social distress and social dislocation. And it has to do with the way that people convert their, their, their sense of fear and distress and, and, and so on into this type of, of outlandish enthusiasm for, for particular figures. Weber said that it is, uh, uh, charisma is a form of devotion that's born of distress and enthusiasm, which, which, which sounds like they, they're contradictory terms. And the contradiction there is, is, is what, what makes it especially potent. Um, and in, in terms when, when, when I, you know, I was familiar with this and I, 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 I familiarized myself with it and so on and so forth. But, um, the, the two parts of this that without getting into, uh, you know, into a kind of professorial mode of talking about something like the Beatles, uh, which of course they would have ridiculed, you know, soundly, uh, someone like me going on like this about this. The two things that I found interesting about it were, um, first of all, the, 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 the awareness that, um, the trigger for the Beatle phenomenon in Britain did seem to have to do with, uh, the, the Profumo scandal that I was, I was talking about earlier, um, which, which in turn was, was interpreted by many people as, as, uh, a, a kind of, as, as, as evidence that's, that, that some fundamental sort of nature of British society was, 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 was falling apart. And then, of course, in Britain, uh, excuse me, in America, um, I think it's fairly, it's almost uh, a truism to say that something about the, fa- about the, the, the uh, uh, intervention of the Kennedy assassination, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November um, 1963, a month before the Beatles suddenly appear on the, on, on the radar screen of American teenagers, that um, that, that too um, somehow charged uh, their phenomenon. And in the book, I talk a lot about the particular impact of the Kennedy assassination on adolescents in America, having to do with their sense of who, who Kennedy was and the sort of president he was and so on and so forth. And without getting into all of that, well, that's the, dispre- that, that's the obvious distress component that, 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 that's involved here. Um, and there, too, there was a sense uh, in America for in, in the months after the Kennedy assassination, this, the same kind of what the hell is going on in this country feeling. Um, that existed in Britain um, around the around the political the political sex scandal that that had taken place there, and I think uh, you know there there's there's something to be gained from from understanding the way that um, a large numbers of of of, of anxious. Um, and of course, adolescents are anxious anyway, but, but large numbers of especially anxious adolescents in Britain and America, um, attached themselves to the Beatles, identified with the Beatles, idealized the Beatles, um, as these, as, as these larger than life figures, uh, as a way on some kind of social psychological level of coping with um this this generalized feeling of 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 distress and dislocation um that 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 seemed to be uh that, that you know that, that that seemed to have so much influence um in 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 their world at that time and then so that's the you know that's the, that's the way in which a, a kind of formal sociological concept like charisma um actually has some some relevance to something like this i think and let's hear the Beatles uh, on the radio on the BBC doing their version of Money. And then we'll come back and I want to ask you about uh, the 
feminist angle on the fan hysteria. So this is mm-hmm. the Beatles doing money. the Beatles on live radio, which was a huge element in in, in their arsenal of, of media weapons. But one thing I want to get to before we wrap up is you talked about the hysteria angle on, on the female reaction to the Beatles. But in the book, you, you bring out a more feminist analyst analysis of this and explain how it was empowering for girls to go crazy at the Beatles shows. Sure. Well, I mean, to me, you know, when, when, when I, I first started to, to move from writing just about the music to writing about the general phenomenon, one of the promises I made to myself was I wanted to do justice to what, what, what the girls were feeling. Okay. Because first of all, the whole thing never would have happened if it hadn't been for them. They, they, their hysteria was the thing that brought the Beatles to the attention of the British press. Their hysteria was the thing that, 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 that arrested, um, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, 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 the, the American audience from the very beginning. I mean, in their, in their Ed Sullivan show, um, appearance in, 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 in February 1964 for the first time ever, um, uh, the cameras on the Ed Sullivan so- show so- showed the audience reacting, showed these girls in this, in these, in these paroxysms of, 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 of whatever they were in, right? Um, so it was a huge part and I wanted to do justice to it. I, I didn't want to just sort of like treat it as if it was some kind of amusing sort of acting out on their part. And, um, uh, several people, Barbara Ehrenreich, who's a wonderful um, uh, sort of, uh, among other things, feminist author, um, wrote quite eloquently about this um, in the sense that uh, what the girls, first of all, the, the press treated it, um, it seemed as if this was an audience of, of, of teenage girls who, God forbid, appeared to be having orgasms in their seats, Right. And, um, you couldn't exactly say that, right? Especially not in, 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 you know, in the, in the early 1960s media environment, but you could allude to it and you could wink at it. And at the same time, you could feel an enormous sense of, of, of distaste and inhibition about, about the idea that this might be going on. Okay. Um, I don't think that's what it was. Um, I've spoken with many, many young, young women who, who were in those audiences and they weren't having orgasms. Um, but they were definitely, um, enthralled to, to something that was taking them completely out of themselves. And what I think is most interesting about it, of course, the sexual aspect of it, the idea that they were asserting themselves, that 14 year old girls, and this meant even more in Britain than it did in the United States, because Brit- British society was considerably more repressed than American society in, 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 in many ways. But the idea that 14 year old girls were, were giving vent to these, to these, the, these kind of simulations of orgasm, in response to these, 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 these male, let's use the term idols, you know, standing in front of them. Um, that in itself was an enormous statement on their part. Um, the screaming got started, uh, I, I think, um, 
you know, sort of uh, 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 spontaneously because uh, young teenage girls have a tendency to scream or squeal in, in, in certain situations. And it gradually became institutionalized. It gradually became actually the signature of Beatle fans. And of course, you know, by the end of 1963, they never stopped in the concerts. I mean, the Beatles were playing to this din of, 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 of girls just screaming constantly the whole time. But what's most interesting about it is not the extent to which they were out of control, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what's most interesting about it is the, is the extent to which they were in control. Um, and it, the, the extent to which they were, they were basically um, engaging in this behavior, which by most standards, uh, after all, screaming in public is generally considered to be a form of misbehavior, right? Um, but the Beatles not only sanctioned it, uh, well, first of all, the Beatles did sanction it, right? Um, and that was an enormous permission that they gave to their audience. Uh, there's a many quotes from the, but George Harrison talking one time about how the fans quote unquote have a right to scream the place down. If that's what they do. The idea being that, you know what you're paying to be here. Um, you can do what you want. Well, you can do what you want is not a message that was delivered to a great many teenagers in America or Britain in, in 1963 and 1964. Um, on the contrary, uh, you can't do that. It was the main, you know, was the main issue that uh, the main command that the, the, the teenagers were receiving in their lives as, as, as has always been the case. So the sense of permission that the Beatles gave, uh, especially to the girls to behave this way and the realization on the part of the girls that nobody could stop it. Nobody could do anything about it. Right. And so it became in to my way of thinking this, this, this incredible expression, um, again, a collective expression, a group expression of, of their social power. Um, these young women were taking over, they were taking over theaters. They were taking over the streets outside of theaters. Um, those are all, those are all expressions of social power. Um, and again, nobody could stop them. Nobody could do anything about it. So there was something enormously empowering about it. And it didn't just have to do with sex. Um, some of it had to do simply with power. And, and writers like, um, I mentioned before, Barbara Ehrenreich see this as a kind of, as a kind of dress rehearsal, as a kind of prelude to the women's movement, which of course, um, as the 1960s goes on, and as, by the way, those young women grow up, right? Um, you know, suddenly, uh, becomes, uh, 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 uh an, an enormously significant, possibly the most significant um, social movement to come out of the 1960s in the long run. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been intrigued by that, that connection there and, and by that, that linkage there in that way. And thanks for bringing that to your attention. And obviously we didn't cover the whole Beatles phenomenon or even close, but, but we, we took a, a stab at it and I hope to have you back on to discuss your book. This is Jonathan Gould. The book is Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain and America. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And, and again, there's a lot more to, there's a lot more to talk about in, 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 in their careers. And I, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to do some more. We'll do it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Nate returns next week with Zach O'Malley Greenberg, author of Three Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and Hip Hop's Multi-Billion Dollar Rise. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Me Love, The Beatles, Britain and America is published by Three Rivers Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.